It's like a hundred killer person jumps on your ribs when you are sleeping on the floor from a chair, from a normal chair. This is Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Ryan Watkins. And I'm Doug Lay. Today, in episode 97 of Parsing Science, we'll talk with Alexander Puzrin from ETH Zurich about his research into a 62-year-old mystery over the deaths of nine hikers in the freezing Russian wilderness, a tragedy that's been attributed to everything from a Yeti to military weapons testing and an avalanche. Here's Alexander Puzrin. Hi, I am Alexander Puzrin. I am a professor and chair of geotechnical engineering at ETH Zurich in Switzerland. This is Swiss Federal Institute of Technology. I was born and I grew up in Moscow, in Russia. Uh, I did my undergraduate studies there, and I took my first opportunity to leave Russia when uh, the Soviet Union fell apart. I moved to Israel, to the Technion in Haifa. There, I did my PhD studies in geotechnical engineering. Then um, I moved for a postdoc to United Kingdom. I did my postdoc at Imperial College London and Oxford University, then back to Israel. I became a faculty member there. I moved in 2001 to the United States, to Georgia Institute of Technology. I was an associate professor there. And 17 years ago, the Swiss made me uh, the offer I couldn't reject. So for the past 17 years, I've been here. Uh, working on uh, geotechnical engineering with uh, recently my interest also involving snow avalanches. A month after they went missing, the frozen bodies of a nine-member skiing and hiking expedition in the Soviet Union's northern Ural Mountains were found near their campsite. Made up mostly of students and graduates from a nearby university, the team had set out on January 27th to reach another mountain about seven miles away. After being sidetracked by a snowstorm, they pitched a tent on the eastern slope of the mountain on the 2nd of February and were never seen alive again. While hypothermia was determined to be the main cause of death, four hikers had severe thorax or skull injuries. Two were found with missing eyes and one without a tongue. Some were barefoot and almost naked. Traces of radioactivity were found on some of their clothes, and glowing orange spheres floating in the sky were reported that night. We started our conversation with Alexander by asking him to explain the government's leading hypotheses that either a regular loose snow avalanche or one caused by the collapse of a snow slab were responsible for what's become known as the Dyatlov Pass incident. In the beginning, uh, nobody knew actually much about what to investigate. One thing for sure, they did not look for the avalanche traces when they were there. But also, there were no significant avalanche cases. Avalanche is normally what is associated uh, with uh, the soft, loose snow when the large quantity releases and um, goes down. Not this steep snow slab type of avalanche. But even with this slab avalanche, you would see the trace. You would see where the slab detached. You would normally see where there was a tension crack behind the slab. But this they also did not see, or maybe they didn't look for. And then there were very strong winds, even on that night. And the the wind is blowing all the time there. 24 days after the event to come and find the remnants of the slab is probably not easy. 
Also, the slab appeared to be thinning towards the top. So you would not even see a normal tension crack here, probably, if you come. So no, this was not the original hypothesis, but it is a hypothesis of one of the searches, Axelrod, who brought it up pretty soon after the accident. And in the 90s, he gave an interview where he brought more evidence. And then another original searcher who found the tent, uh, Slapsov, he later defended uh, this hypothesis and co-authored the book on the avalanche hypothesis. So it's not a new idea. The idea is pretty old, but there were some arguments uh, against it. And most of the arguments, I would say, they were not scientific because people would say, how would avalanche explain missing eyes and tongue? Of course, it wouldn't explain. It, uh, they, you need some other additional explanation for that, what happened later to uh, the bodies. But there were also some good scientific arguments against the avalanche hypothesis. And delay was one of them, one of the most important ones. And another one is really the lack of obvious traces. Uh, one more is the fact that um, apparent inclination of the slope when it is covered by snow is uh, pretty low, it's uh, 21 to 23 degrees. And the last one, of, of course, are uh, the injuries. Okay, we're not talking about the burns and missing eyes and tongue, but the injuries, serious injuries with broken ribs and broken skull, these are not typical injuries for avalanche victims. Avalanche victims normally die from the lack of air. Asphyxiation. Since that fatal day in 1959, multiple sensationalist theories have emerged about the true cause of the deaths of the hikers. Spurred on by the gubrious reports of the injuries that Alexander mentioned, these theories were also fueled by a rather unsatisfying conclusion drawn at the time by a criminal investigation of the incident, attributing the deaths to, quote, a compelling natural force, unquote. You'll find them all over YouTube, of course, and there's even been a feature film and a video game made which integrate a variety of these into their plot lines. Most are outlandish, but there's one aspect to the case that left Doug and I with some residual consternation. Why a criminal investigation was undertaken by the Soviet authorities. In 1959, a criminal investigation was opened because there were nine dead bodies, right? And uh, this was not like they were all found under a slab of snow. They were found all in different places, about 1.5 kilometer to 600 meters away from the tent, and with very some of them with very strange injuries. So they had to open criminal investigation. But then they closed it, and closed it because they did not see a foul play there. So this formulation of compelling natural force is exactly an excuse to close the criminal case. And this is all what they did. You know, they were not interested in this hypothesis or that hypothesis. They were only interested if there was a foul play. The moment they decided it's not the way to say this was a compelling natural force. That's what I understand now from what the prosecutor, because I came across the prosecutor's press conference which was recorded, and so I listened to it for two hours, and he explained this part as well. So this is the part of my research which I like most. I'm taking a real-life problem, 
and I'm trying to formulate it as a mechanical problem or a physical problem, if you like. And then I turn the mechanical or physical problem, this mechanism, I turn it into a mathematical problem, mostly into a system of differential equations with boundary conditions. And then I try to solve it. And once I get the solution, I'm trying to understand what I actually got and whether this solution makes sense and helps me to solve the real life problem. So this is the part which is creative. Why? Because you need to simplify things. You need to idealize things. Because nature is, of course, much more complicated than any of your physical or mathematical problems. So you need to distinguish between primary and secondary effects, between what is really important and what is less important. Because if you try to bring absolutely every single phenomena into your model, this model is going to be extremely complicated and you will never solve the problem. Alexander's resolution of the cause of the deaths had to address four aspects of the incident, which seemed antithetical to an avalanche being responsible for the hikers' deaths. First, the campsite lacked obvious signs of an avalanche or debris. Second, the average slope above the tent was less than what's considered sufficiently steep for an avalanche to occur. Third, if the cut in the snow made by the group to shelter their tent did cause an avalanche, then it should have occurred hours earlier than it actually did. And lastly, the kind of thorax and skull injuries discovered were not typical for avalanche victims. We started looking first of all at the topography. Why is it important? Because indeed, 21, 23 degrees slope for the avalanche to happen is too low. The rule of thumb is that 30 degrees becomes uh, dangerous, but it can be also lower than that. There is no really uh, exact location of the tent. There are some estimates. But from these estimates, you could see that topography there is irregular. It's not just a plain slope. You have steps there. Steps of the order of about uh, 15 meters. And uh, these steps have a flat part and a steeper part. And the flat part is almost zero degrees. And the steeper part can get to 30 degrees and more. When you have snow covering the whole thing, the snow, you know, imagine snow falling on the stairs. If uh, the cover is thick enough, you are not going to see stairs anymore. Right, the snow will simply kind of average the slope. And this average slope was about 23 degrees. But if you put your tent closer to uh, the steeper part, then actually the slope on which the snow slab is lying can be steeper. And this is what happened. We saw that the tent, or one of the possible positions of the tent, was actually closer to the slope, to the steeper part, which was 28 degrees. Now, this is just a part of the story. So the slab does not uh, slide on the terrain surface. It slides on a weak layer, actually formed above the terrain surface. So you had a weak layer, which is 28 degrees, and the slab, which had a surface of the 23 degrees. And this, first of all, explains why the avalanche could happen. 
And second, it explains why the slab was so small and people couldn't find any traces. Because in this case, the slab is thinning upwards. It cannot be very long upslope, right? Because its bottom is steeper than its top. And that's why there was no crack there. And that's why there were no really a lot of traces. It was not too much snow, basically, to hit uh, the tent. So on its own, already this observation helped to start thinking in the right direction. Okay, this observation on its own already could take care of the two arguments against the snow avalanche. But it also helped in a way to counter two other arguments with the delay and the injuries. But the hypothetical avalanche would have released during the night, hours after the hikers made the cut into the slope to shelter their tent. And if they weakened the slope enough to cause an avalanche, why didn't it happen immediately? At the time of the avalanche release, you cannot really find this part anywhere in the literature. So we had to try to derive it ourselves from uh, the documents from forensic investigation. So what do we know? We know that they pitched the tent and they cut the slope when there was still light because we see the last photo on their camera when they are digging a platform to pitch the tent. I went to find out what was the time of the sunset on that day in this location. And it was about uh, 5 p.m. So this was already one thing. So we knew that they would try to use as much of the light day as they can. And just before it gets dark, they will pitch the tent. So we knew the, the starting point. It is more difficult to say when this actually happened. But we know several things. First of all, we know that they died about eight hours after they had their last dinner. This was from forensic investigation of the contents of their stomachs. Second, three of the people had watches. Actually, one had one watch and another had two other watches. It was very cold. It was about minus 30 degrees uh, Celsius. Normally, from other forensic investigations, people will know that these mechanical watches would stop in this temperature about one hour after the person died, simply because of the cold. You know, the body cools down. Then there was another um, evidence that you could not really survive in this cold for more than three hours in the clothes that they had. Seven and a half to 13 and a half hours is a huge uh, range, right? So we cannot say for sure what actually happened there. But collecting all this evidence together, this is what we came up with. So we knew about this delay. But then there was a big thing missing. Exactly where my main research interest and specialty and expertise lies. Why not immediately? What happened in the delay? So what did happen during that delay? We'll find out after this short break. This episode of Parsing Science is brought to you by Figshare, a free-to-use cloud-based platform for storing and sharing your research outputs. Upload your tabular data, images, 3D scans, videos, and more to Figshare to get credit for all your research. 
And if you're a fan of podcasts, check out Figshare's podcast, School of Batman, where we ask academics to use their research to help Batman fight crime. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to parsing science. Here again is Alexander Puzrin. So if your slab doesn't fail immediately, you need to load it so that it fails. So normally this additional load would come from a snowfall, right? This is the easiest thing. There is a snowfall, snow accumulates on the slab above the tent. At a certain stage, the load is too high. The strength of the weak layer is not enough anymore and you get the release. But we know for sure that there was no snowfall on that night. What we know that there was wind. How do we know it? There are weather stations, which you could also follow and see what happened that night. The only problem is that the closest weather station is like uh, 60 kilometers away, right? And uh, it's uh, probably not on a similar mountain. So we don't know how reliable it was, but it's still recorded between four and nine meters per second wind. We noticed also that there is another interesting topography feature on this map. And this is that it was uh, on a slope at the elevation of about 900 meters, this tent. And the whole mountain was about 1100 meters high. And the top of the mountain was a plateau. It was not really a sharp uh, peak. It was a plateau. And then if the wind blows over this plateau, it normally blows the snow away from the plateau and deposits it lower on the slope. So combination of the wind and this snow transfer. So you did not really need a snowfall. Wind, strong winds together with this uh, special topography created uh, snow transport, shoveling the snow from one place and putting it above the tent. And that's where this model, my mechanism allowed to bring everything together. Because I managed to calculate how much snow you need to fail the slab of this additional snow. So this allows us to back calculate the rate of snow deposition. And there is a research in snow science which relates the rate of snow deposition to the velocity of the wind. So it appeared that going back from the observed delay to the snow deposition rate, we could back calculate the necessary wind velocity, which appeared to be in the range between 2 meters per second and 12 meters per second. And uh, the weather station recorded 4 to 9. So uh, this then all made sense. We could see that with this wind, with this snow transfer or transport, delay between seven and a half and 13 and a half hours is feasible. A slab is a cohesive plate of snow that slides as a unit on the snow underneath. The bonds holding a slab in place typically fracture at 350 kilometers per hour or 220 miles per hour, and it appears to shatter like a pane of glass. These can routinely reach speeds of 30 kilometers per hour or 20 miles per hour within the first three seconds and quickly accelerate to around 130 kilometers per hour or 80 miles per hour after the first, say, six seconds. The dynamics of what happens when it starts to slide and break apart are indeed complex. Just recently, a colleague of mine, 
here it ETH. He read uh, he read the paper and he said, "Why did you need a numerical analysis at all? Because with your analytical model you can also get the dynamics." This is what I did in the beginning. You know, I kind of did some back of the envelope analysis to see that this would work, right? Because what it is, there is a potential energy which turns into kinetic energy and hits the reeds. The reality is not so simple because the slab, when it starts moving, it also disintegrates into smaller blocks. Okay, so it's not like one five by five meter thing which hits you because this is a lot of weight. This would probably kill them straight away. But the moment the slab starts moving over the cut, the blocks breaks out. And actually, this first block, which provides the largest impact, it was also not purely translational displacement. It was also a bit of a rotation. Okay, it kind of toppled on them. So that's why this dynamics analysis was uh, quite, quite important to see the real dynamics of the blocks, to see the size of the block and the velocity of the block. So what is this two meters per second and this block mean? So for you to get an idea, it's like a hundred kilo person jumps on your ribs when you are sleeping on the floor from a chair, from a normal chair. So this is not a pleasant uh, picture, of course, but this is more or less the dynamics. And this is more or less the injuries that would happen. They had uh, between uh, a lady there, I think she had uh, ribs broken on both sides, five and six. And the gentleman had five ribs broken on one side. Uh, the slab apparently did not hit the whole tent. It just hit half of it. As Alexander mentioned, the force of the falling slab was equivalent to a 100-kilo person, that's about 220 pounds, jumping from a normal chair onto my ribs when I'm sleeping. And frankly, I shudder to think what it might be like from an abnormal chair. So sure, I get that it sounds pretty unpleasant, but just how do you go about establishing whether it'd be possible to cause the types of injuries associated with the Dyatlov Pass incident? I started searching for, I mean, impact on the human body research and i saw a lot of finite element simulations and i thought you know in the end uh, we will just take a similar properties as we got there or other people took there but then during the search i came across these two obscure conference papers it was a collaboration between general motors and uh, i think san diego university hospital where they got about 100 cadavers and uh, performed crash tests on them. Apparently, with the goal of improving safety of their cars and of their seat belts. And uh, in the process of this crash test, they were hitting these cadavers with flying objects of different mass and different velocity. And they put sensors on the ribs to watch reaction of uh, the rib cage, mainly deflection of the rib cage. This was important for them. And then they also counted the broken ribs. You know, of course, today I think this would not be possible for ethical reasons. But uh, when I think that probably by improving safety 
of the cars, this test helped to save many lives. So maybe this could be justified. Anyway, for us, this um, was um, a really incredibly useful information because now we could, first of all, derive correct mechanical parameters of uh, the human ribcage and put it into our model. And second, compare deflection that we got in our simulations of the ribcage with the deflection in these tests and to see how many ribs would be broken. And um, surprisingly, we got very close to what was observed in autopsy reports. So these were severe but not fatal injuries. Alexander used something called dynamic friction angle distribution to gauge the kinetic friction of the slab as it cracked and slid into the tent. So we were especially curious to learn more about this as well as how Alexander calculated it. Dynamic friction angle distribution comes from independent research. This is not what we calculated, this is what we used as one of the parameters. Because we needed later to know what happens with this lab. So the first part of the research, which is um, reflected in my analytical model, allowed us to basically answer three out of four questions. How could it happen in such a mild slope? Why there were almost no traces of the avalanche? And how could we explain the delay? It also provided us with the geometry of the final slab, which released and hit the tent. And here we come to the third part. And this third part is related to the injuries. And this was the part done by my uh, co-author, John Gom, who uh, has a computer program, a very advanced, probably one of the most advanced computer simulations of the snow avalanche dynamics. The geometric parameters and the properties of snow for the slab for his model came uh, from my model, but we also needed to have dynamic friction uh, of the weak layer below the slab. And this we got from the literature, from uh, analyzing um, tests uh, that other people did. Uh, with the snow slab avalanches. We put a numerical human dummy at the floor of the tent. And what happened when the slab is released, hits the tent and uh, hits uh, the dummy in the chest. This was quite interesting because, okay, in order to have a realistic information of what happened to the human chest, we first of all needed to give this dummy mechanical properties that a human body would have. And the second, even if we model these properties correctly, we would need to understand if the slab would uh, break the same amount of ribs as was observed in autopsy reports. Putting all of these pieces together, Alexander determined that progressive wind-blown snow accumulation on the slope above the hiker's tent almost certainly caused a slab avalanche, which killed the nine hikers. But this conclusion still doesn't explain, nor address, other controversial elements surrounding the investigation. 
such as traces of radioactivity found in the victim's garments, the behavior of the hikers after leaving the tent, which seemed aimless, and the location and states of the bodies. So, while the case of the Dyatlov Pass incident may be closed, the mystery may still be far from over in the public imagination. Interestingly, you know, I think this case is going to haunt me forever because I really hope that we are done and it's gone, but actually it, the things keep going on and very, very, in very exciting way. I will give you some details which happened after the publication and after the interviews and the press started talking about it. So I was contacted by some Russian journalists and um, I started looking more into the recent uh, Russian press. And in particular, you know, I was aware of what's going on there. I also knew that July 2020, Prosecutor General uh, declared that the case has been closed and this must be a snow slab, but no details. But now I got some details, including also what happened in 1959. And actually, and here, I would not like to miss it because here you will have exclusive content because I have not talked to anyone about this because I got, surprisingly, after starting reading this uh, Russian reaction to our paper, I found out they started asking experts who participated in prosecutors' investigation. But were asked not to talk at that time. And all of a sudden, in a reaction to my paper, they started providing information on the results that they got during investigation. And uh, this was actually great because in general, I have to say, a reaction to our paper was not very positive in Russia. You know, they wanted to be the government plot. And if you ask me, I also wanted to be the government plot. Right, but um, or some foul play. But uh, I can only talk about my paper, and my paper shows that uh, avalanche hypothesis, at least these four arguments which are normally brought against it, are not valid. In the beginning, I could not understand. You know, of, of course, you know, avalanche can happen at any place. And uh, you cut the slab, it does not have just go immediately. You weaken the slope. So why did it hit just a half, half of the tent and the, the another half survived? It is possible. But with this latest information that got published, I saw they had a better map, a more precise map of the area. And actually, towards the end, which was hit, terrain becomes steeper. So the slope was 28 degrees at that part of the tent. If you move to another part of the tent, it was like 25 or 26 degrees. It appears that there was a good reason why uh, the part of the tent which was hit was exactly that part, which also comes from a local topography, but they have even better topography than we had because they had better maps and they actually also visited that place in the winter and took measurements there. Scientific careers are often filled with unexpected twists and turns. So to wrap up our conversation, Doug and I wanted to learn what Alexander believes prepared him as a geotechnical engineer to take on this 60-year-old mystery. I have to say, you know, I kind of evolved during my scientific career. 
first of all, in the beginning, I really tried to impress everybody how smart I am. Which means that for every problem, I was looking for the most complex solution possible, right? And to get extremely complicated maths that nobody would understand. And then uh, everybody said, this guy must be really smart. But then, you know, when apparently I managed to convince everybody <laughs> and myself that I'm smart. I don't didn't need that anymore. And I went to another extreme. I started doing things as simple as possible. Okay, and here there is also another danger of uh, oversimplifying things, you know. And then I came across the saying by Einstein, which says that each problem has to be solved as simple as possible, but not simpler than that. I am trying now really to find uh, this, um, this balance. Another thing, you know, I think that uh, changed over years. In the past, I was sort of inventing problems myself. You know, you solve a problem and then you say, okay, but I can change something. I can make it more complicated. I can make it more general. And then uh, to solve a bigger problem and publish it and so on. But at a certain stage, I stopped being satisfied by that. I started looking for real life problems. And uh, luckily for me, in my past years, I have come across some very nice real life problems, both in, in engineering and in earth sciences. I think I was lucky because from my early steps of the career, I was not only in academia, I always had uh, a foot in industry, in consulting. In particular, things that I like most was investigation of um, different geotechnical failures. I even teach a course at ETH for graduate students, which is called Forensic Geotechnical Engineering, where geotechnical engineering is used as a tool to investigate different failures and its consequences. I mean, fortunately, in my consulting, I never had to come across the cases which ended up with the loss of human life. But I had some cases which ended up with um, very large environmental damage, which we talk about in the range between $200 million and $500 million. And uh, there were lawsuits and even criminal investigations. But I got involved because it was not a, an easy problem. So not only that I, uh, it was quite an exciting experience, it ended up actually with uh, quite nice signs because in most of these cases, you know, let me put it this way. If it was a simple problem, they wouldn't come to me. So uh, they would uh, find other people to solve. So uh, automatically, I end up with pretty complicated cases. And I love it because I go through this process. And on top of that, you know, I feel like a little Sherlock Holmes who needs uh, to solve it. But as I said, this whole process of trying to understand the real-life problem and to reduce it to a certain mechanism and to maths and to solve it, I find this part 
uh, fascinating. That was Alexander Puzrin discussing his open access article, Mechanisms of Slab Avalanche Release and Impact in the Dyatlov Pass Incident in 1959, co-authored with Johan Gamm and published January 28, 2021, in the journal Communication, Earth, and Environment. You'll find a link to his paper at parsingscience.org e97, along with transcripts, bonus audio clips, and other materials that we discuss during the episode. If you like what you've been hearing on Parsing Science, then head over to wherever you might get your podcasts and subscribe. And if you already do subscribe, consider leaving a review on iTunes. It's not only a great way for others to learn about the show, it's also a great way to help spread word of the work of the scientists on it. Next time in episode 98 of Parsing Science, we'll talk with Joao Teixeira from the University of Adelaide about his recent research exploring why genetic variation preserved in modern human genomes suggests that at least one additional hominin group likely inhabited the islands of Southeast Asia at the time when anatomically modern humans first emerged. One of the most fascinating things about this Denisovan discovery is that while they were discovered in Siberia, their DNA presently survives in the highest proportion several thousand kilometers south of Siberia in, of all places, Australia and Papua New Guinea. We hope that you'll join us again. <laughs>